So if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah 5. You can also find it printed in the worship guide on page 6. If you're just joining us, we've been going through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which were originally one book. And in Ezra, we saw the Israelites set free from their captivity in Babylon. The Persian king sent them back to Jerusalem, where they rebuilt the temple that had previously been destroyed. And now we see something similar happening here in Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a Jew who was living in exile as a cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes. And when Nehemiah learned that the walls of Jerusalem were in ruins, he asked the king to allow him to go back and rebuild the walls. And the king gave him his blessing. So Nehemiah wasted no time returning to Jerusalem, organizing the rebuilding effort, and getting to work on the walls. And last week, we saw fierce opposition from the surrounding nations who did not want to see Jerusalem returned to its former glory. So the nations plotted an attack against Jerusalem, but Nehemiah learned of their plans through much prayer and trusting in the Lord and was able to plan a defense that would prevent their attacks. So that's where we pick up here in chapter 5. So let's read together Nehemiah chapter 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. 
so may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you are not a God who is distant, but you have given us means by which we can know you and have life in you. Lord, we pray that you would teach us this morning. Help us through the book of Nehemiah to come to know you and love you more fully. Use your word to sanctify our hearts and strengthen our faith in you. In your son's name we pray, amen. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy. This is the mantra of the Cobra Kai Karate Dojo, founded by Sensei John Kreese in the 1984 classic movie, Karate Kid. Well, if you haven't seen it, the movie follows the rivalry between two young karate stars, Daniel LaRusso, the good guy, who was trained by the wise and gentle Mr. Miyagi, and then you had Johnny Lawrence, the bad guy, trained by cutthroat John Kreese. Well, in 2018, the Karate Kid franchise was rebooted on Netflix in a series named Cobra Kai. The series continues to follow Daniel LaRusso and Johnny Lawrence, both now middle-aged, as they reignite their rivalry by starting competing karate dojos. Now, when the founder of Cobra Kai, John Kreese, when he hears that Johnny Lawrence is starting up Cobra Kai again, they decide to join forces and raise up a stable of fighters that can defeat Daniel LaRusso and his students once and for all. At first, everything is going well with Johnny Lawrence and his sensei, Kreese. They train the students together at Cobra Kai, and they train them to fight with ruthless aggression. And it's effective. Well, I don't want to spoil any more than I've already spoiled. <laughs> but if you've seen the original Karate Kid movie, it should be no surprise to you that eventually, Kreese becomes a real problem for Johnny Lawrence. And eventually, Johnny realizes that the greatest threat to himself, to his students, 
to his dojo. It's not Daniel LaRusso. It's not the enemy out there. The greatest threat was Christ, who was right inside their walls. Well, in Nehemiah 5, we see a similar type of cancer forming within the walls of Jerusalem. Up until now, Nehemiah has been focused on protecting the city from outside threats and foreign invaders. And in our text today, we see him shift his focus from the threat that's out there to the threat that exists within their own midst. The Jewish nobles in Jerusalem had ceased walking in the fear of the Lord, and they were taking advantage of their own people. Now, it's it's easy for us to judge the Jewish officials for being so selfish. The truth is that we're just as bad. Our selfishness probably looks different than what's going on in this passage. Maybe for you it's avoiding the difficult tasks at work, just leaving them for someone else to do. Or maybe you're doing that at home, neglecting housework and working with the kids when you know that your spouse could use some help. Or maybe there is something bigger going on in your life, like cheating, lying, stealing, or abusing someone. Well, no matter what it is, all of us have a tendency to put our own desires before the needs of others. And the reason that we do this is because we do not fear the Lord as we ought. Well, before we move on, I just want to mention that when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we're not talking about being scared of God. The best short definition that I came across on the fear of God is that the fear of God is respecting him, obeying him, submitting to his discipline, and worshiping him in awe. Respecting him, obeying him, submitting to his discipline, and worshiping him in awe. Well, Nehemiah is going to show us that the fear of the Lord should move us to deny our sinful desires. And he's going to show us three ways specifically that this should happen. First, the fear of the Lord should keep us from selfish ambition. Second, the fear of the Lord should lead us to committed repentance. And third, the fear of the Lord should lead us to selfless sacrifice. So first, the fear of the Lord should keep us from selfish ambition. In verses 1 through 5, we see the people coming to Nehemiah, their governor, to protest their conditions. There's currently a severe famine in the land, and the people are starving, and taxes are high. Remember, the nation was still under the rule of the Persian king, Artaxerxes, and he was taxing them at rates that were unaffordable during a famine. People were getting desperate enough to take out loans, to sell their homes, and even to sell their children in order to survive. Well, we've seen some rising food costs and some empty shelves over the last year or so with COVID and supply chain issues. And some of us have been legitimately affected by this. It's not easy to deal with. 
financially, and emotionally. But imagine it getting so bad that you have to take out a loan against your house, or even just sell your house outright in order to be able to eat and pay your taxes. It's not a pretty thought. Now imagine after selling your home, the money runs out again, and there's still no food. Imagine being so hungry and so desperate that you sell your children into slavery. I mean, I'm asking you to imagine it, but it's pretty unimaginable. I can't even get to that place in my head where that would be an option. But that's how dire their situation was. Now look back at verse 1. It says, A great outcry rose up from the people. And who was the outcry against? Was it against King Artaxerxes? Was it against Nehemiah? No. It was against their Jewish brothers. The great injustice here is not that they're low on food and that taxes are high, but that their Jewish brothers are taking advantage of them in their desperate situation. So what's Nehemiah's response to this outcry? Look at verse 6 and 7. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Nehemiah is outraged. I think it's telling what kind of leader Nehemiah was, that in the midst of his anger, he doesn't just lash out and let his anger rule the day. He takes counsel with himself. He composes himself, thinks about his response before bringing charges. There's probably a valuable lesson there for us. Well, after he takes counsel with himself, he then brings charges against the Jewish officials in verses 7 and 8. And the two main accusations that he brings against them is one, that they had been charging interest on loans against their fellow Jews, and two, they were buying and selling their fellow Jews into slavery. And both of these practices were explicitly forbidden in Leviticus 25 and elsewhere, scripture that they would have known. Now, Nehemiah, for his part, he had already been trying to buy back the Jewish slaves that had been sold into the nations. But what's worse is that the Jewish officials knew that he was doing this, and they were taking advantage of it. They would sell the slaves that they bought from these desperate families into the nations, knowing that Nehemiah would buy them back and they could just repeat the cycle. In verse 9, Nehemiah says, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? The nations were watching this unfold. While Nehemiah is working on building the wall, the nations are watching the Jewish people tear each other apart, making a mockery of the God that they worship. God's children are not supposed to act like this. If you claim Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
remember that your actions reflect upon him. We should look different from the world, walking in the fear of God. The Jewish officials had forsaken the law because they had forsaken their fear of God. Have you ever seen that show, The Dog Whisperer? It was a reality show that featured world-renowned dog trainer Caesar Milan, and each episode would feature him going to the home of someone who had an unruly, aggressive dog, and he would try to get, help them to regain control. And every episode, without fail, no, mat no matter how out of control the dog was, eventually Caesar would always get the dog to calm down, to focus on him, and act like a totally different, more emotionally stable dog. It seemed like every episode he was doing like some sort of mental reset on the dog, like as if he was resetting them back to their factory settings. Like when you unplug your router and plug it back in. But he wasn't doing this by hurting the dogs, no. He was simply conveying an energy to them of, I am the human, you are the dog, you will listen to me. And what you would see every episode was some aggressive, domineering dog transform into a submissive, attentive, and happy dog as they were taught to live in harmony with their owners rather than rebelling against them. In a sense, these dogs were being reminded of their fear of man. And it was good for them. Nehemiah is reminding the people that their God is a God to be feared, and not because he's necessarily going to punish them, but because they were made to live in harmony with him rather than rebel against him. And we are given a set of instructions for living in harmony with him. God loves you too much to let you continue in your sin. He wants more for you. Well, the Jewish officials were deliberately breaking the law of God for their own gain. They were exploiting their own people. Do we do this? Do we exploit people, even our own people, for our own gain? We're probably not doing exactly what the Jewish officials are doing in this passage, but we do exploit each other. One of the ways that we do this that we don't think about very often is through gossip. We seek all the best gossip and we just tell ourselves that we're just being good listeners. But really, there are times when we just want to hear people's struggles because it's just juicy. It brings us a sort of satisfaction to be in the know or it helps us to feel superior knowing someone else's struggles. And there are other ways we exploit each other. We take advantage of people's time, their hospitality, their generosity. We manipulate each other. We tell half-truths and white lies. We exploit our brothers and sisters every time we neglect our duties to each other and just take care of our own desires. Like the dogs from the Dog Whisperer, we are vicious animals who need a hard reset. We need to remember who our God is 
We are not the masters of the house. The master has provided us a better way to live, according to his law, in harmony with him and with one another. And through the grace given to us, through faith in Christ, he enables us to live this way, in a way that the world can't. Well, we've seen that the fear of the Lord should keep us from selfish ambition, and now we're going to see that the fear of the Lord should lead us to committed repentance. In verses 1 through 9, Nehemiah has just confronted the Jewish officials over their mistreatment of the poor. Now, moving on to verses 10 through 13, we see him move from accusation to exhortation. From, you did this, to... Now, do this. In verse 10, he says, Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Nehemiah, he includes himself in this, but most likely he was giving out interest-free loans to people who needed it and was now telling the Jewish officials to follow his example. And more than that, he tells the officials to return everything that they've gained from these desperate people. Property, slaves, money, all of it. And the response of the Jewish officials is somewhat surprising. They say in verse 12, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. The officials listened. They knew that what they were doing was wrong. They knew it was against the law of God. And how often do we do the same thing? We break God's holy law when we know it's wrong just because it feels good for a minute. Well, Nehemiah doesn't stop there. Rather than simply taking them at their word, he calls the priests and makes the officials swear to do as they promised. Nehemiah knew the story from Jeremiah 34 where the people set all their Hebrew slaves free only to take them all back again. So he makes these people commit to their repentance by taking an oath. He then declares a curse over any of those who would break the oath. He shakes out his cloak and declares that God will just as easily shake loose the belongings of any man who breaks the covenant. Was anyone ever told you that they were going to do something? Maybe a friend, a coworker, a spouse, and you want to believe them, but you know them well enough to know you're gonna need some reassurance. When we were kids, there was this hierarchy of promise making. It would start by saying, I promise. And if that wasn't good enough, you would move on to the pinky swear which was a binding contract by kid code. And if it was a really serious matter, you would say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Well, that's getting closer to what's happening here. There's a reason why Nehemiah called the priests in for this. The reason is that the officials were not just making a promise or crossing their hearts, but they were swearing by the name of God to turn from their sin. And as such, there is a threat of consequences if they break their vow to the Lord. And how did the people respond to this threat? Well, 
Look at the end of verse 13. They say, amen, or so be it. And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they'd promised. This oath-taking ceremony restored the fear of the Lord in these people. They had been caught up in their sin for so long, serving their own desires, believing the lies of the devil, that they had been numbed to the seriousness of their sin. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like something you can relate to? Is there sin in your life that you know is there, but you haven't committed to repenting of? So many of us have simply learned to live with our sin. We treat it more like a character flaw or a personality quirk than rebellion against a holy God who loves us. We've become experts at justifying our sin. We act like these sins aren't shaping our hearts day by day into hearts that are distant from God and lacking in the fear of him. Well, if you were with us when we went through Ezra, you might remember that when Ezra confronted the people in their sin, when they were intermarrying with pagans, he had them take an oath that they would divorce their pagan wives and send them away. And here we see Nehemiah following this same pattern. He has the people take an oath that they would divorce themselves from their sin. Well, if there is sin in your life that you have simply been living with for too long, it's not too late to take it seriously. Confess your sin. Follow the example of the people in Ezra and Nehemiah. Confess your sin publicly to a trusted brother or sister in Christ, to one of our pastors or elders. Have them hold you accountable. Our God is a holy God who is to be feared. He despises sin. But it's not just because it's against his rules, but because it's hurting you. Fear the Lord and divorce yourself from your sin. Well, we've seen that the fear of the Lord should keep us from selfish ambition and lead us to committed repentance. And now we're going to see how the fear of the Lord should lead us to selfless sacrifice. Verses 14 through 19, if you're looking in your Bible, it's a separate section from the rest of the chapter. Nehemiah wrote this section 12 years after the rest of this story. It takes us out of the narrative, and it's more of a reflection on his time as governor. And the theme of this reflection is his own generosity. Remember, Nehemiah was the governor of these people, and as such, he had the right to certain luxuries that the rest of the people didn't have. The governor was given a food allowance, and he also had the right to tax the people at whatever rate he wanted. And in verse 15, Nehemiah talks about the former governors who came before him who were a burden to the people, taking their money and lining their own pockets. He then contrasts the corrupt actions of the former governors with his own actions in verses 16 through 19. 
He says he worked faithfully on the wall. He opened his table to Jews and foreigners alike. Not only did he not take the food and money that he could have, but he spent his own money to feed people and to feed them well. He wasn't just feeding them the bare minimum. He fed them ox, sheep, birds, an abundance of wine. He knew he was asking a lot out of these people in their service and working on the wall. But he was not a dictator. He was a leader who was asking for hard things from his people, yet his heart was for their good, not his own. Can you imagine our elected officials being this generous? Even if one of our officials did act this generously, I can just see the Facebook comments of, oh, they're just doing it for the camera, or they could have spent their money in better ways. But Nehemiah, he wasn't an elected official. He didn't have to worry about elections or campaigning. He was the governor as long as King Artaxerxes said so. Nehemiah's generosity was genuine. The key verse from this section is found in verse 15. He's talking about the former governors and how they abused their authority. And then he says, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. The reason that Nehemiah has placed this section here is as a contrast. He's contrasting his fear of the Lord versus the Jewish officials' lack of the fear of the Lord. He's telling his readers that this is what the fear of the Lord looks like. This is the kind of life that the fear of the Lord will lead to. It's easy for us to scoff at the idea of our elected officials being this generous, but maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe the question should be, can you imagine yourself being this generous? Can you imagine yourself sacrificing your bank account to help strangers who are in need? Well, Nehemiah ends this chapter with a prayer. He says, Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This might sound kind of like works righteousness, but if you remember a couple months ago, we were going through the book of James, and in James chapter 2, he stresses the importance of living out your faith. He says that faith without works is dead. And Nehemiah is pointing here to his works as evidence of his faith. The fear of the Lord should help us to see that our possessions are not our own. Our time, our money, our talents, even our families, all the things that we treasure the most, these all belong to God. It's only once we realize that we are merely stewards of his good gifts that we can live lives of self-sacrifice. And as much as Nehemiah shows us what it looks like to sacrifice selflessly, Jesus does so even more. Nehemiah had the authority to live a much different life than he did. Like the governors before him, he could have just lined his pockets and stuffed his belly and pursued his own desires. 
how much more so did Jesus have the right to live a different life than he did? He wasn't just the governor of some small little province, but the king of the universe. Yet he came down from his throne to come and live a life of service and sacrifice among us. The next time that you tell yourself you deserve a little self-indulgence, remember Nehemiah. Even more, remember your Savior. Walk in the fear of the Lord. Well, in the classic children's fantasy book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the children in the story are staying with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they're suddenly surprised to learn that the king of Narnia, Aslan, is a lion. Susan says to Mr. Beaver, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. She then asks him if Aslan is safe, to which he replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Well, in the following chapters, we see that Aslan truly is a good and righteous king who loves his people, and the people willingly follow him because although he is to be feared, he is good. Michael Reeves wrote about the fear of the Lord in his book, Rejoice and Tremble. He says, right fear of God does not stand in tension with love for God. Right fear falls on its face before the Lord, but falls leaning toward him. It is not as if our love draws near and fear distances. True fear of God is true love of God. A right fear of the Lord will not lead us to run from him. A right fear of God will lead us to him. It will lead us to his word, to his law, to his son. And if you want to know how to acquire the fear of the Lord, look no further than the cross. There we see God's righteous wrath poured out on his son for the, gift, for the forgiveness of our sins. Look at his body and his blood poured out for you. He does not take sin lightly. Fall on your face before the Lord, but fall leaning toward him. Let your fear of the Lord drive you to him. May it lead us to deny our sinful desires by keeping us from selfish ambition, leading us to committed repentance and to selfless sacrifice. 